Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. I'm Adam Pierno. I am Generation X. And I'm Farah Bostic. And according to 1993's adage, I'm Gen Y. Oh, nice. Nice. You took yeah. us back in time. I How did. appropriate. Yeah. 74 to 80. We were Gen Y with tiny, tiny micro generation, but I'm sticking with it. I've decided to you're, embrace you're it. Gonna... I'm a digital native. I love my parents. Everything's going great. Are you more diverse than any other generation in history? Me specifically? No. <laughs> <laughs> you as Generation Y, though. You know, I don't even know if they were making that claim at the time. I think they were just like, they're definitely different than Gen X. Let's give them a name. Yeah. For we now. don't know how. Yeah. No. We're not no. sure what the years actually are. No. <laughs> We're going to go with this six years and stay how it feels. Just walk around in it a little bit. If you are joining us for the first time, you should probably go back and listen. In our last episode, Farah took us through the pivot from the new golden generation that we were promised, the, the digital natives, to how the media changed them into people who were thirsty for feedback and praise, and that perceived change in the attitude they showed in governments and all things civics. Mm-hmm. And that led us to today's question. Yeah, a little bit different um, because obviously we keep seeing these pivots happen. And so the thing we thought we would do is start with, well, where did this all begin? And went looking for what we think is the, as you keep putting it, urtext of the millennial myth. And that book seems to be, and I think we've alluded to it in a couple of the other episodes, but that book is Millennials Rising. And it was written by Neil Howe and Bill Strauss. Now, I couldn't believe you found this as we started having a conversation about the questions we had about millennials and the millennial myth that we've already started exploring, that you were able to recall this book at all, because now having read through it, it's so, by today's standard and by the volume of business content, I I don't want to dismiss this book as pseudo-research, but research strung together with hypothesis and conclusions that's not quite scientific standards. Mm -hmm. It's pretty forgettable in general. I I think so. Yeah. In reading it again, it's sort of like, well, these things are all pretty easily. Some of them are fine and some of them are pretty easily debunked. And overall, it it seems to be a book that can't decide if it's actually optimistic about this generation or not. (laughs) Like it sort of wants to be, but then has some deep seated fear lurking in every page. But yeah, it's not a it's not a flashy book. It I, I can't imagine that it was on any bestseller list at the time. I actually haven't looked that up. I don't even remember, to be honest with you, how I came to have the book. But, but I had you remembered it. reading it. Yeah. Yes. And you remember you recalled reading it, which I don't. That's why my mind was a little bit blown. And imp- I was impressed, Farrah, to be honest. I thought, like, how the hell <laughs> could she remember this from 20 years ago? <laughs> this is it's somewhat yeah. forgettable, although it is seminal. I think it's because it was the first thing I read slash skimmed that was trying to put a definition on a whole generation. Like I hadn't read read, read any books that were like 
boomers rising or whatever. And I think that um, the only other book that could be said that I read that could even loosely fit that definition would be, you know, the Copeland book, Gen X, but that's not really a book about a generation. It's, that's not really what's going on there. And to be honest, I read that book after I read Microsurfs, I think. <laughs> I was doing everything backwards in a certain way. But I think the other thing about it was looking at it and saying, I'm not totally sure if they're trying to describe me or not, because at the time there was so much kind of confusion about what are Gen Y, millennial, what are we calling people? When are these years? Who's what? Yes. We've talked about this before. I never particularly felt like I fit into Gen X in the way that Gen X had been defined in the media. And then my brother was four years younger than me. And so I was like, what about this checks out from my example of one who I grew up with? And, you know, I think that was part of it. I think the other part of it was it was putting a stake in the ground about these people and what they were like and what they were therefore going to be like. And it struck me at the time as I don't think there's any way you can know this. <laughs> it should come as no surprise that, you know, five years later, I'm working in market research instead of still trying to be a copywriter in advertising because I'm like, hang on, this doesn't make any sense. I need to understand more <laughs> about this. But like, the, I think that was part of it as well, was that this story struck me as it couldn't possibly describe the bulk of this group of people they were trying to define and it couldn't possibly be steady state and they couldn't possibly know what these people were going to be like. 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. um, and so things that get me to have that, uh, I don't know if I buy that response, tend to stick in my brain. I think that's, I think yeah. that's why. Yeah. That's what it I didn't remember. stick because you thought it was true. It stuck for the opposite that you were like, I'm yeah. not sold on this. And I, yeah. it kind of stands out because it raised questions. Yeah. And then, you know, every few years after that, you start, you know, not even every few years working in the ad business and then in market research, you get constant onslaught of various trend reports that are telling you about these millennials. And so the interesting thing was seeing these parts of the narrative from millennials rising that stuck and the parts that quickly got discarded and forgotten. And now we're talking about something else. And so I've just been an amused observer over the years of these, these kinds of generation definitions, particularly for this one group. And then I think the other side of it, which I feel like we talked about a little bit previously, is it really felt like millennials as an audience were having being a millennial aggressively marketed to them. And yeah. like, you are like this. And so you should behave in these ways and you should consume these kinds of things and so on and so forth. And so that was- This is the behavior, yeah. Yeah. They were raised by doting parents who told them they were special, played in little leagues with no winners or losers or all winners. They're laden with trophies just for participating and they think your business as usual ethic is for the birds. And if you persist in the belief, you can take your job and shove it. Corporate America is so unnerved by all this that companies like Merrill Lynch, Ernst & Young, and Disney and scores of others are hiring consultants to teach them how to deal with this generation that only takes yes for an answer. Yeah, and I think so, this, this kind of grounds everything that comes out after that because it was trying so hard to say, we think we know how this is going to turn out. Yes, I did do some research into the sources for the book. And I looked, I spent a lot of time in the indices of this book and there's no reference to avocado toast at all. So I know they got this whole thing wrong. Yeah. Yeah. They totally whiffed on that. <laughs> Were there books or writings or content that led you to millennial generation as it relates to the millennial audience? In our last talk, we looked at the turn 
around mm -hmm. mid 2000s, early 2010s that the media had that hard pivot. Going back in time from 2009 to 2000, were there other texts that referenced this or that harkened back to it in some way that led you to this? Or was it just that recall of reading it when you were, you know, at Shiat and thinking? <laughs> to be honest, it was just a recall of like, wait a second, I had I had a book that had yeah. all this stuff in it and I got to go find it again. It was a Google of millennials trust their parents or something like that. Millennials trust in government. What I found at that point was a talk given at a university to university leadership about the incoming class of 2004 or something like that. By Howen Strauss? No, 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 no. But it's cited to Howen Strauss. Okay. Got it. Got and then I was got like, it. ah, that's the name of that book. And I mean, I could kind of picture the book. It was gray, like, like and it had cartoons in it. That was what I remembered about it. But uh, it had that desktop publishing feel that we've talked about before. I could kind of picture the book. I could remember what the story of it was. I couldn't really remember what the title was, but that speech then led me to that book. That's hilarious that even having read the book, doing the Google search brought you to the same sort of farcical rabbit hole of like, oh, yes, it's this weird myth that they love their parents um, <laughs> that connects back to Millennials mm -hmm. Rising, which I don't want to be dismissive of Millennials Rising, and I don't want to be uh, rude to the authors. I think they were trying to parse out a huge story from a sample that they estimated could be as big as 100 million people. Mm -hmm. But we are going to laugh because there's, you know, anybody making predictions gets a lot of them wrong. And a lot of them are wrong or looked like they were right at the time. And then you look back and you go, well, I'm not really sure about that. And we are known for our sense of entrepreneurship, our volunteerism, our tolerance of diversity, and for being the first generation in American history to not do better than their parents. Should we start with a little bit more about the authors and how they got to this book? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're an interesting duo for a couple of reasons. And one is that this is not their first book about generations. So this is actually, I think, the third book about generations that they wrote. The first yep. one is literally called Generations. The second one is called 13th Gen. Hang on, subtitle is so good. 13th Gen, Abort, Retry, Ignore, Fail? question mark. And it's about Gen X uh, because Gen X was being called lots of things also. And apparently 13th Gen was one of them. I'm glad um, that didn't stick. Yeah. I also think that 13th Gen is somehow like the 13th generation since the founding or something. It's it's a very America-centric generation name. Right. But yeah, that didn't stick. And so then they wrote this book about millennials. They actually coined the term millennials apparently in like 87. So when millennials were starting kindergarten, they were already starting to think about that group that would be the, the class of 2000 graduating from high school in 2000. So they're also the ones who have the most expansive definition of the birth years of millennials. So they go from 82, 84 to 2002 or something like that. Mm -hmm. or yeah, it's a, much, it's a much broader look at what the generation yeah. would be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other folks kind of uh, stick with like 82 to 96. It depends on the demographer. It depends on the survey. Even yeah. within organizations like Pew is not always consistent. The census is not always consistent. And no one really has a definition of millennials beyond the birth years. But they, they have the kind of longest one. They make an argument that generations in general are about 20 to 22 years in length. And 
And I think some of that is just to kind of keep things consistent. So, so they had been working on that. Now, Howe, Neil Howe, was an economist, is an economist, who was at the time that he wrote 13th Generation was writing a book about federal entitlement programs. <laughs> so like, you know, that that's his background. That's yeah, where he's hard, kind of coming from. Yeah, hard economic data. Yes, yes. And and like looking at looking at the history of those programs. So he's kind of a, you know, I think probably what's interesting then there is if you're an economic historian, then these kind of demographic questions probably do interest you. And I think one of the other kind of clues here about why they would care about both Gen X and, and millennials mm-hmm. is that there was in the late 70s, early 80s, there was this concern that baby boomers were not having enough kids. And so they would not have enough tax revenue to support them when they got to retirement age and that the social security program would implode. So I I wonder if that's, I haven't asked him, but I wonder if that's like the jumping off point for, for him um, as he's thinking about entitlement programs. Social security is, is kind of one of the big, the biggies there. So maybe that's part of what he was thinking about of, you know, so what's going on with these additional generations? Are there enough of them to sustain baby boomers when they hit 65? What are we going to do about all that? Um, now, Bill Strauss, on the other hand, his author credit in the back of the book is that he was one of the directors of The Capital Steps, uh, which if you're not a PBS nerd from the 80s, you may not have heard of or not from the D.C. area, then you may not have heard of them. The Capital Steps are this like, I want to call them the second city of D.C., but I'm not sure that's right either. It's uh-huh. more like if you've ever been to like dinner theater in a small town. Yes. Um, a small city. Yeah. Rumor, call your broker to check on a rumor. That could cause you to lose your good humor. When you see your next statement, you'll see which funds have paid off savings. Uh, or like those, those, those mystery dinner floor shows that you could get in almost any town with like the yes. murder mystery dinner theater. Like it's that yeah. kind of thing, but for politics, but for politics, there's a lot of songs. It's a lot of, um, you know, attempts at, um, some, some successful, some not at satire of whoever's currently running Washington. And yeah, it's, it's very special. <laughs> it's, it is something. very particular. They apparently shut down in 2020. The pandemic hit them hard. Um, and so uh, the, the capital steps are no more. Ooh. <laughs> they but live that, on forever in our hearts. Exactly. But so it's, you know, it's, it's too bad. I, I think that you recently found out that, um, that Bill Strauss passed, um, it, it's, does, yeah. it's, which is, you know, obviously a sad anyway, but also sad because I would have loved to ask him, how do you go from being one of the directors of the Capitol Steps to co-author of these books about generations? Yeah, that path is is would be an interesting conversation to learn more about. And the partnership with how I also would be interested to know how the economist and a cultural commentator, yeah. you know, is, is it that the is that the alignment? <laughs> that's how the that's how the book reads. It reads like the hypothesis were, was created by the economist and the cultural commentator did the writing and work. Yes. Because what the research feels directional. And to be fair, like you're talking about in the year 2000, you're talking about 
people that are really hard to measure because they're not part of the census. They're not part of, they're not mature. So they're not part of surveys. They're not over 18. They're hard to reach. So a lot of it is pretty directional. And, and I went through and spent some time in the sources for the book that they cite. And if you go back and you really dig into the sources they cite, a lot of the sources are their own books. Mm -hmm. You know, the primary sources are their own writing. They cite generations, they cite 13th gen, the fourth turning. The sources are also in a, a book written by an economist. I would expect a certain type of rigor for citing and footnotes and, you know, really being clear about sources, but it's more thematic. Yeah. Kind of like chapter one, we talk about this and this and this, and that touched on the census and it touched on this survey we did. And trust us, the survey's good. <laughs> it's really loosey goosey, which your reaction to it in the year 2000 at 20 something years old mm -hmm. was the, the reaction that I would think a critical thinker would have. But as we said, this is the urtext. This is the seminal text. The media or somebody, I can't say the media, it got picked up. And a lot of the stories in here were what got copy pasted forward. Well, and, and I think a lot of it is the, you know, it is a book. It's a, it's not a short book. It does cite data in the passages of, of the book. You're right. The, the, the end notes and footnotes are kind of difficult to parse and figure out, okay, you reference that you looked at some source, but I have no idea where to go look inside that source to figure out. And it's also not even clear, like which sentence of that chapter are you referring to when you say that you relied on the census for it? So there's, there's a kind of rigor problem in the back end. But if you're just looking to get someone who's done the work for you or appears to have done the work for you to tell you what this generation is all about, this book appears to have done that. Yes, um, it, it answers yeah. the questions if you're, if you're looking for someone to spoon feed you. Mm -hmm. It does that. Yes. And I think the, the fact that they wrote Generations and 13th Gen previously, that gives you some sort of sense of like, well, this is the third book they've written about Generations. So they this is their thing. Like this is this is what they're experts in. One of the things to understand is that most historians never look at history in terms of generations. They prefer to tell history as a seamless row of 55 year old leaders who always tend to think and behave the same way. But they don't and they never have. If you look at the way America's 55-year-old leaders were acting in the 1960s, you know, the ebullient and confidence of the JFKs and LBJs and Hubert Humphreys, and compare them with today's leaders in Congress, the indecision, the, uh, the uh, lack of sure-footedness, um, I think you, you, you have to agree that 55-year-olds do not always act the same way, and you're dealing with powerful generational forces at work that explain why one generation of war veterans, war heroes, and another generation which came of age in very different circumstances tend to have different instincts about acting. I also think it's it's worth mentioning two additional things about the books that they have written together. And one is just that Generations also has an excellent subtitle in its scope and sweep and ambition, which is The History of America's Future, 1584 to 2069. <laughs> Yo, but seriously, I want to read that book. That the history of America's future. I want to read the hell out of that book. I mean, yes, absolutely. You want to pick that thing up. Yeah. The second thing is they also wrote a book before actually they wrote um Millennials Rising. So I guess actually Millennials Rising is their fourth book. The third book is called The Fourth Turning. Um yeah. and I think this is why I 
flip these around. It also has a fairly audacious subtitle, which is An American Prophecy, What the Cycles of History Tell Us About America's Next Rendezvous with Destiny. And I think the fun fact everyone should know about this book is it's a favorite of Steve Bannon's. Poor Neil Howe has had to write columns saying, I understand that Steve Bannon really likes this book. And hmm, here are some things I might like to say about that. Yeah, (laughs) backing away, backing away. Backing away while also promoting the reprints. So like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to. You gotta, you gotta pay that. You gotta pay that bills. Bannon likes it because it has an economist tied to it. I don't know that Bannon necessarily likes the theories that are put forth in it because any other reason than oh, I can reference things in here that I can shape to my my own points and reference Howe and Strauss. And so there's an economist tied to it. It's not it's not me. I'm connecting it to something, assuming there's the type of rigor behind it, which is yeah. what I think is true for the reasons. Millennials Rising got picked up. People are like, oh, oh, it's these two people, there's an economist involved. And it's mm-hmm. not everybody is Freakonomics. It's not all that level of rigor and scientific um, mm-hmm. checks and balances. And I don't think any of their four books would meet the academic standard. They're not, none of them are published by a university or by a, an academic press. No, no. I, and I think the other thing about the fourth turning is that they're sort of making some predictions. And I think Bannon thought that he could accelerate those predictions that that he and others could kind of hasten the fourth turning, which he thinks will bring about the things that he wants in American society. Yeah. Um, they are in they're solidly in the predictions business. Uh, every everyone on podcasts for, for the last five years has been saying, well, I'm no longer in the predictions business, but these guys have been firmly in the predictions business for 30 years. They focus this on thinking about these kind of epochs of American uh, history and the people coming up within those epochs. So they're thinking about generations as as the drivers of each of these turnings. And, you know, for whatever reason, they're, they're deeply interested in these cohorts of people as both explanatory of the of America's past and also predictors of America's future. And that that seems to be, I, I would imagine also as like a reporter or a commentator reading these books, that that's all very sexy as hell. <laughs> like, it's just like, ooh, someone's making a prediction. Somebody's got an, a, a, an overarching theory about how generations work. All this is great. Yes, it is juicy copy for a copy desk editor or somebody creating a segment. Especially at, at that time, you know, 2000 was not quite the birth of, but the taking off a launch point for 24-hour news cycle with cable news and the internet was just maturing. So having that kind of juicy lead mm-hmm. to fill in, oh, we don't have any, you know, no, there's no crime happening that we can report on. Here's a juicy story where we can pit a generation mm-hmm. against someone and make a prediction. Yeah. And, well, and we're not liable for it. Somebody right. else said it. Right, exactly. And and also it's not disconnected from the crime beat. Like if you think about the like it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are kind of trope, action news, eyewitness news, whatever. This is about our children. At, at the point in time when this is coming out, millennials are still mostly kids. A few of them are heading off to college, but most of them are still in middle school. Some of them are still in kindergarten. We are we are worrying about and projecting forward the future of America's children. The oldest are barely out of college, the youngest still in grade school. And whether you call them Echo Boomers, Generation Y, or Millennials, they already make up nearly a third of the U.S. population and spend $170 billion a year of theirs and their parents' money. 
almost none of it on boring things like mortgages and medication. They're a reflection of the sweeping changes in American life over the past 20 years. The first to grow up with computers at home in a 500-channel TV universe. Multitaskers with cell phones, music downloads, and instant messaging on the Internet. Totally plugged-in citizens of a worldwide community. You know what? Even now that you're just now you're saying that we've been talking about this for six months. It's just dawning on me that you read this book around 2000. Mm -hmm. And it's about millennials who were called that because that's the class that is going to graduate. Like they have not graduated high school for the most part, depending on how you drag the shoulders of the generation out. Mm -hmm. So it really I still think of it as millennials that I know as adults, mm -hmm. <laughs> even though we're, we're looking back right. in time. It is, it is important context to realize they were talking about these future forecasts of 10th graders. Yeah. You know, high school sophomores. Yeah. yeah. This is also related to, because, you know, one of the other kind of questions we had is where, where did even their thinking kind of come from? And obviously there's the research they did and there's all those studies that they cite, but there are themes in the book that are really present and like almost every page they come up. And yeah. one is the, for want of a better term, the browning of America, right? Mm -hmm. The eventual majority minority status of, of white folks in America. The other is falling fertility rates. So w women having fewer and fewer children on average, you know, this had been going on for quite some time, right? Like the, the mm -hmm. immigration surge happens after, I think it's like 1965, there's a change in the immigration laws and there's a surge in global immigration to the US. 71, the birth rate dips below two per, per woman. We're below replacement of a pair. And, um, and that has kind of continued to sort of subtly decline over the years. And so there's a lot of anxiety about that. Because of concerns like, you know, if you're an economic historian who's concerned with federal entitlement programs, you're looking at that going, who will pay for the baby boomers retirement? <laughs> you know, like, if, yes, if we don't have enough children, who's paying for it? And then you have other racial things going on there and whose definition of what America really is going on there. And uh, and then the third thing seems to be this idea that baby boomers having kids in the 70s didn't like children or care about them very much. Baby boomers having children in the 80s suddenly were very concerned about their kids. Um, and we've talked about this before. The symbol that keeps being used in the Millennials Rising book is the baby on board sign in the back of a station wagon or a minivan. And, and sort of the idea that boomers went from you know only caring about themselves to their lives and universes revolving around these children is also a cultural observation that I think is is informing a lot of what's going on in the book the baby on board thing we've referenced it in, in earlier conversations and they hammer that so hard it's in every chapter of the book I'm pretty sure yeah um, they hate it they <laughs> yeah, absolutely they hate, hate that sign <laughs> they don't want people to have it it yeah. makes me wonder Boomers suddenly can cover this basically a 20 year span and halfway through something changed about their parenting that led to this observation about this smaller segment, which is like six years. Mm -hmm. But we still don't look back at how we categorize boomers. We still categorize that as this huge window of time instead of saying like, oh, wait a minute, all the kids born in this time from this group of people. Like you could easily break boomers into two groups now because you could look back with historical data and do like a really clean read mm -hmm. and have a really good sample to do that. 
Mm-hmm. But, we, but we don't do that. We yeah. just want to look forward and be like, hey, the end is nigh. We're, right. you know, the future is bright, but the end is nigh. This yes. generation will save us. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. My least favorite yeah. phrase in the, in the American language. Anyway, there is this amnesia about what we were saying five minutes ago about and this we can't, group. And we refuse to go back and, and address it or fix it or suggest Mm-hmm. Maybe we should have broken that out. Like maybe we were wrong about Gen X. God forbid anybody talks about Gen X. And I'm, yes, I have a chip on my shoulder. Wait, is there, there's a Gen X? Oh, I mean the Jordan Catalano generation. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's the best meme about generations is like, okay, here's the population sizes of the living generations and like a very few greatest generation, baby boomers, millennials. <laughs> they just skip yeah. Gen X. <laughs> Yeah, there's yeah. just a question mark in there. Yeah. Like, I don't know, we some don't, people who here. cares? All they're doing is carrying the economy. <laughs> <sighs> there are some themes that they've put forth in Millennials Rising mm-hmm. that the babies on board thing, I don't remember. I remember those going away. And I remember sort of a cultural backlash about them, but I, not, I'm not tying that to this book. But there are some other elements like the idea of parents coddling their kids is a theme and that generation of baby boomers coddling their millennial kids and therefore those kids are x y or z mm-hmm. which as we talked about last time means that now as their manager you have to coddle them mm-hmm. uh, that's a problem but in the year 2000 and millennial rising it actually meant oh no because they were so nurtured yes. they are loving and trusting and optimistic mm-hmm. Yes. And even a little bit like there's an intimation of obedience, right? That they, because they trust authority, they will do what authority says and they're rule followers. I mean, that's a whole section in, in the millennials mm-hmm. rising book is about them being rule followers. And the evidence of that is they're, you know, they were as a generation, were more likely to be wearing uniforms to school, which of course was not their choice. They weren't like, give me some rules to follow. I want to wear skirts that are no shorter than this and no longer than that. That that's the, force that gives my life meaning. They were told what to wear, right? And had no choice. And if you didn't, you got sent home from school. Like th- these these were just put on them, not something that they opted into. But those kinds of um, representations of them were like, they were going to be great when they hit the workforce because they were going to be ambitious and goal-oriented and trusting and obedient. And like- It's this all the thing rock. America wants from its consumers. Totally. Yes. You know, I just yeah. I'm picturing uh, John Carpenter's They Live, you know, <laughs> obey, consume, procreate. Yes. But but I think, the you know, going back to like how this book, without being particularly famous, is nevertheless present in all that early coverage of millennials as a generation and still is in is embedded in the narrative about millennials is partly because it pulls together all these different threads it pulls together the diversity immigration um you know the 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 echo boom piece the um the kind of rising academic standards the decline in crime, the decline in childhood drug use, like all of these things that were really giving them, you know, anxiety about Gen Xers has started to subside. And that birth dearth, that that rapidly declining birth rate started to bump up a little bit in the 80s, you know, the the mid 80s into the 90s. And so it's like, here's the grand unified theory that explains all of this and also tells you what it means. 
Yes. And so and, instead and of we want, and together, we want that. I want that. I want yeah. someone to tell me, like, connect all this for me. It's, it, I find it helpful. And so it gives you kind of, and, and the other thing that's fascinating about it is like, it's a kind of official posture is it wants to be optimistic. The diversity, the immigration story, the, all of that is, is like in general, a good thing. And they have these passages where they talk about if everything goes well, this will be the next greatest generation. They will be heroes and literally call them, that. <laughs> literally say they will be heroes. And Yet there's still this but dark warning of if something happens that's bad, they could become a really dangerous group of people because there are so many of them and they are so diverse and they have been pottled in all these ways. And dangerous is a weird, it is implied, <laughs> the way that they would be dangerous and to whom they would be dangerous is, is implied in the book, but it's not explicit in the book that no. what that really means. But there is this dark cloud that hovers over everything's awesome, except yes. if, if something should happen, which I mean, 9-11 happens, the recession happens, which, which we covered at length in the yeah. last episode, that of course, bad things are going to happen. We're not yeah. in this. I, I know when this was published, the wall had just come down in Berlin. So it was yeah. that global prosperity forever theory, which I wish that oh. were true. Yeah. It's all like end of history and the last man stuff. This is all looking like America won. And now it's just eternal optimism forever. Okay. But, but, you know, they're not, they're clearly not stupid because they, they allude to this possibility that something could go wrong. And I think you're right. They don't come out and say what the danger exactly is, but the danger is pretty clear, right? These, these kids who trust their parents and government and institutions who are generally obedient and optimistic could experience something that makes them deeply pessimistic and lose trust in those institutions and turn on yes. them. Yes. Right. That's the risk. And there are so many of them that we will be overrun. And the implication that they set forth, which is what is what gets picked up in coverage we talked about last year when the when the narrative pivot happens, mm -hmm. is that they've been coddled. And if we stop coddling them, if they stop feeling nurtured and hugged, they're <laughs> going to run amok. And they're going to mm -hmm. do things like kill the toilet paper industry and kill, uh, you know, the restaurant industry. And they're going to push back on the labor. You know, it's like, well, I think that's what people do. It's not because they're millennials. They're going to ask for the, the human rights yeah. that they have been afforded up till now, and they're not going to want to give any of those back. I think that's such an interesting point. And I hadn't really thought about it until you just said that of like part of the promise of both Millennials Rising and the, the articles and think pieces and books that came out after that were this idea of them being excellent consumers, right? That they would be, first of all, big consumers, lots, lots of spending, lots of buying stuff, very acquisitive. That was this great opportunity. And that if, and, you know, so marketers have for the last 20 some years been really focused on how to capture millennials as their audience and as their path to growth. And some of the kind of early white papers from brands that you see are actually hilariously, like I was looking at this the other day, they're like from wine trade organizations who are like, what kind of wine will millennials drink? You know, like, how do millennials think about wine? And it's like, yes. what a weird thing. But like, they're the ones kind of anticipating some sort of disruption. And I don't know if it's because for a hot minute, uh, what was that Zima or whatever was really popular? And they were like, oh no, do they have bad yeah, taste? Right. Has <laughs> like, everything changed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, that, that idea of 
they're going to be great consumers. And so then seeing them like not being that into cereal or not that into these brands or not that into buying in bulk or whatever, that was like the the kind of disappointment, the, <laughs> the like, oh, honeymoon's over kind of moment for a lot of brands of we were expecting them to just need like the right advertising. And then we'd sell, sell, sell because there's so many of That's them so and they'll have all this money. Yes. And instead, right. Oof, uh, they don't like what we do. They don't like us. And that's part two. Part one is is the the news groups. Time magazine famously published that that article that I think broke the dam. And mm -hmm. it, they don't reference millennials rising, but they, a lot of the themes are threaded mm -hmm. um, back through that. And at that point, people read Time. The news news organizations helped carry the the ball, but the marketing world. Mm -hmm. saw, oh, oh, there's a door opening to this new mall that's got a hundred, they thought a hundred million people in it. We better figure out how, what to do with that. Then mm -hmm. uh, the HR industry got involved and started, started pointing it out. Then essentially anybody who wanted to sell something to put the word millennials on it in, in any kind of B2B sales, you know, like you could have whatever widget, but the millennial widget was, was geared towards their exact preferences. It has a baby mm -hmm. on board sticker and comes with avocado toast. Like <laughs> it's geared just towards these people. And it's called I something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That yeah. helped a lot too. <laughs> and they were looking for the same source text we were looking for. What is yeah. the, what is the research? What are the data points we can find? Because it is too big of a group to sample mm -hmm. to find the homogeneity that we seek because we want to sell it. Not because mm -hmm. it's true, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll get into this when we, when we do an episode about kind of how research works when you're trying to study a demographic by generation. And so I think one of the things I would not at all be surprised to see is brand surveys going out in the wake of millennials rising that have attitudinal statement batteries that are just directly lifted out of this book that are yes. things like, I trust institutions. You know, I have a good relationship with my parents. I am optimistic about my future. You know, I prefer to follow the rules. Yeah. In future episodes, we're going to hit those questions and those approaches in a, in a few different directions. Yeah. And yeah, lots, lots to dig into with yes. that. And, and the way that gets picked up by the authors here and shaped to the narrative and to the hypothesis that they have. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, you get these kind of interesting, there's almost these recurring touch points. It's kind of recursive. They keep going back to the well. You get that piece in a special issue of Time Magazine in 93, The New Face of America, where there's like a computer generated face of a mixed race young woman. And this is the thing that's like, all right, so get used to people who look like this woman, you know, who could be, you know, so Alex Wagner, who's on MSNBC now wrote a book called Future Face, and how this sort of piece, in some respects, defined her upbringing as a mixed race person in America. So you get that. And then you get the millennium is nigh and Anna Quinlan writes her piece. It's a Newsweek. Um, literally New Year's Eve 1999. And it's basically the kids are all right. Oh, kids today are amazing and everything's going to be great. And then, you know, early 2000 outcomes, millennials rising and then brands and media and like, they're all circling around each other. And so, you know, if you're, if you're working in media and seeing what the advertising is doing, you start to think they must be doing that because there's a real thing happening in culture. And so like, it just becomes an echo chamber.
between yeah. brands and the media to understand this audience because they share the audience, right? Like the media is also trying to figure out how do we attract millennial readers and subscribers and viewers. And in a um, weird way, it's it's the beginning of the hype cycle. Oh, that's yeah. Yeah. And it's about the people we're trying to sell the hype cycle to. Yes. And I yes. hate the hype. I, I want no more hype. I need yeah. less hype. I can't care about which Kardashian is married to who. I can't care about any more things that are in the 24 hour news cycle. I need less yeah. of it. Yeah. I mean, 24 like an eternity. Yeah. I know. I've started in, uh, in Twitter top articles filtering by la last eight hours because I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't need four links about that thing. Um, no. Just I, can't, I actually can't process that much. I, I just no. need less, yeah. much less. These are the kind of founding things. The only other thing I would, I would throw in there is don't forget that at the time this book is coming out, there is a dark side to all of this, which is the worries about the Y2K bug. You have millenarian cults. <laughs> you have people um, committing mass suicide. You have moral panics about the youth. All of these things are are undercurrents of of the of this moment where we're simultaneously like the kids are all right and they're going to save us and they're the next greatest generation and yada yada yada. And of course they are uh, children while we're making all these prognostications, both positively and negatively, about them. Yeah, and you had pointed out the idea of moral panics as a an 80s, 90s trend, we could probably do a whole season on moral panics and maybe we will. But <laughs> this as a response to that, it, the, the way Millennials Rising is written is these are the kids that you don't have to, we don't have to label music. These kids will always choose the worship the radio music. edit. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They, they don't want to hear Dio, you know, they want to hear. <laughs> no, they want to hear Striper. Yeah. They, they... <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, we all do. Yeah. I still, someone, when I was in middle school, gave me a Striper CD and I was like, I've never heard of this band. And I put it in and was like, oh, hmm, let me yeah. take that out again. <laughs> How many tracks did it take you to figure out what was happening? I don't know. I think it was like two, because I think the first one was not heavy handed. Like the top track yeah. was not like, not coming straight out you know, with Jesus. But then it, then it was pretty clear. Yes, it was an orthogonal approach from Jesus on the Striper album. <laughs> <laughs> Just well, sliding into your DMs here with some, exactly. With hey, by the way, like this, <laughs> like this track. By the way, yes. yeah, like this wafer. Yeah, but but I think you're right about that. I think that that moral panic backdrop applied more to Gen Xers who were home alone, doing drugs, having sex. But here are these sexless, sober, obedient children who have a mom at home or a, a care, a caregiver. Yes. And so it was less the, the, again, you referenced the uh, school uniforms, which was not their choice. The supervision was also not their choice, but they had it. Mm -hmm. The outcome is extrapolated out to be, Oh, then they love to be supervised. Well, they didn't choose it. Yeah. It's just what, this is just what it was. And this is how it worked for them. Yeah. It's just the water they swim in. They have no idea that there's some other way of doing these things. And again, like it, it's so important to always say, who are we talking about when we describe that lived reality? We're talking about predominantly white middle and upper middle-class affluent families, you know, in, yes. intact families living in suburbs with access to childcare, good public schools that nevertheless somehow require them to wear uniforms and and mom doesn't work outside the home, most likely. 100%.
So in our next episodes, we are going to look at that suburb. A lot mm. of the research in this book is based on the place in which the authors lived, which is McLean, Virginia. We hinted at it in the last episode, but we're going to do a deep dive looking at McLean, Virginia, and whether that's the right place to base your entire theory of a generation of global adults and American adults. Not sure. And we're going to go into the idea of millennial trust and all the survey work, all the data that was pulled to reference that is sourced in the back of millennials rising. So we can understand the frame that they were creating and whether that holds up if we compare it across generations or across other time spans. Yeah. Or even uh, to a couple of other relatively contemporaneous surveys that did not seem to come to the same conclusion. <laughs> I mean, you can pick and choose, right? Isn't that how data works? Yes, apparently. And also <laughs> apparently what they chose was yay government, <laughs> yay mom and dad, <laughs> the sort of version of the story. It's hard to deny. I mean, they had baby on board signs that they must be pro-government all it's the time true. for the rest of their life. I got to tell you, I saw a baby on board sign the other day. Oh, they're back. They're back they and they're better back. than ever. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it's part of the, the great millennial nostalgia movement. Yes. They're like, wait a second. There was a baby on board sign in my, my mom's car when I was little. I'm going to need one of those for my kids. They don't even have kids. They just want the sign. Probably. It's, it's ironic. Like a fur baby on board. <laughs> Ugh, let's hope we don't start seeing those pop up. Although I'm going to start a, an Etsy store right now. Yeah. Get right on that. All right. <laughs> well, until next time. All right. This has been great. Yes. Yeah, really getting to the bottom of this now. I feel like it. I feel like we're starting to understand what the hell's happening. Yes. Yes. I think it's, I think it's really important to talk about what they were specifically looking at. And I'm looking forward to that next time. Excellent. See you then. All right. On the next episode of, In the Demo, Farah and Adam go to McLean, Virginia to learn about Group Zero of the Millennial Hypothesis. I'm your robot host, Eliza. Please be kind. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Piano, with support from the Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man, under the Creative Commons license. Go to InTheDemoPodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information.